welcome to Paint Ed. PCA provides painting contractors with connections they need to grow their business. To find out more and to become a member, go to PCAPaintEd.org. Find more great content like this on PCA Overdrive. A subscription to the platform is included with membership. For all you non-members out there, sign up for our free trial. PCA Overdrive is available on the Apple Store and Google Play. In today's podcast, we feature an episode from Painted with Torlando. This episode is sponsored by 3M, Conquer, and PPG. Welcome to Paint Ed. My name is Torlando. I am your host. What's up, folks? We got a. Uh, I'm looking out the window. It is a nice, crisp, calm, and soothing fall day. Uh, the leaves are turning, and uh, I just love this time of year. I love it for two reasons. One, because it's beautiful outside. And the other reason is because I think our schedules start to cool down a little bit and we're actually able to gather our feet from under us, think, start thinking about next year, start coming up with plans for how we want to grow, how we want to position ourselves in the future. And I understand that some of our listeners uh, look forward to this time of year with dread. You're trying to fill your schedule. You're trying to keep your crew busy. You're trying to grow the company in spite of the slowdown. But I will tell you that for those who have, you know, who have that grass or that uh, ant mentality rather than that grasshopper mentality, this time of year is an opportunity. It's an opportunity for you to gain market share. And if you do it right and you have the plant, the right plan in place, you can look forward to not only a profitable year next year, but in leaps and bounds, profitable years in the future. And we're going to talk about that today on the show. Uh, before we jump in, I just want to let you know that this show, including all of our other uh, paint edge shows on the network, um, like, you know, the brothers of the brush ask a painter pca today um all of that is available on pca overdrive where that is our that is kind of like our netflix app it's like our you know it's our version of paint content on an app all the video 500 hours plus of video content it's 5.99 a month for non-members if you're a member of the pca it's included with your membership. Now that's cool. All right. Ton of benefits to being a member of the PCA. Uh, you've got access to the job board, access to healthcare plans, um, access to the ask a peer network. Um, you get exclusive discounts on events, that kind of stuff. So many benefits to being a member of the PCA. Go to PCAPaintEd.org and become a member today. Um, Coming up on November 7th, I will actually be in Manahawkin, New Jersey. Never been there before. Sounds cool. Hope I'm saying it right. On November 7th, I'll be giving my sprint workshop. I gave this at uh, Crank this year. Um, Look, people enjoyed it. That's what I'll say. People got a lot out of it. They enjoyed it. 
uh, I got some calls afterwards. Hey, can you can you walk me through some of this stuff? Um, All of the Sprint Workshop content is actually based off of my book called Sprint. Uh, You can pick that up on Amazon. Um, Other dates, I'll be in Littleton, Colorado on the 9th and 10th. Um, Both of these events will be sponsored by Sherwin-Williams. I hope to see you there if you are in those areas. Um, All right, folks. So you're in business to grow. That's real. You know that. You're in business to grow. But you're carrying a lot of it on your shoulders. I understand that. Um, there's, uh, there's just, there's so many business stuff that you, your training as a painter with the brush in your hand did not prepare you for the things that you're facing today. I get that. Part of the reason why I run this show is to give us an education, myself included. Okay. I, I, I have a degree, but it's an art. All right. Now I'm going to go get it. I'm getting my MBA. I'm about to get that. I'm about to start that. But right now my degree is in art. That's my background. I've had to feed myself with education on how to grow. And I was, I've got a really great guest on today. And before the show, we were talking a little bit about increasing market share, because that's what it's all about when you're trying to grow. It's all about increasing market share and being able to do that in the fastest and effective way possible. And this time of year, you guys are trying a lot of things. You're, you're running ads, you're doing, you're doing the lead gen services. You are calling past customers. You're doing tons of stuff. And honestly, sometimes it feels like, especially, you know, when we're going into the slow season, that the amount of money that you're spending is increasing. The amount of effort that you're putting into it is increasing, but the return isn't happening like you want it to. There's got to be some other ideas out there. And I'm really excited to have uh, JB Brown on with uh, White Buffalo Advisors to talk to us a little bit about mergers and acquisitions. Um, This is something that I've been thinking about, something that I've been wanting to to really understand. And my background in the software industry, when I was in software, I was at a company that got acquired. And I can tell you that when we got acquired, that it was a happy day for everyone. Uh, I, you know, I got a little a little little kick out of that. That was good. It was good for me. It was good for a lot of us. And so what I want to do is I want to have a great discussion today about mergers and acquisitions and uh, how that applies to painting companies. So I'm excited for this conversation. Um, let's go ahead and uh, yeah, let's let's just do this. Let's jump in. Let's bring on Mr. JB Brown to the show. Hey, what's up, JB? How you Hello, doing? Lando. How you doing, man? So good to see you. Yeah, good to see you, man. I uh, you, so you were with you were with us in Crank. That's where we met. Yeah. And uh, you your your session was right after mine. Sorry to give you such a tough act to follow. <laughs> Ruined my day. <laughs> <laughs> hey, folks, unsolicited. Truly, I I, I don't know. I met Torlando at that event. Listened to his presentation. I have had the good fortune of traveling all over the world. I speak a lot myself. Heard a lot of presentations. Torlando did such a good job. Um, and if you're looking to improve your company f- from an operational perspective, which is really important, and it it plays into what we're going to talk about today. You're nuts if you don't take advantage of the opportunity to reach out to Torlando before he gets too famous and won't talk to any of you. (laughs) 
Oh, well, that's that's nice. That's kind. I, I'm going to try my best to always be available to my to my painters, of course. But uh, uh, yeah, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I, I appreciate that. Um, I, I enjoyed your session and I was, um, you know, I, I have like I said in the in the intro, I have um, considered um, mergers and acquisitions. I've considered mm-hmm. bringing on partners. I've always um you know, uh, in the past, especially in my previous company, I always took a lot of pause because I just wasn't sure. Hmm. Um, but I knew that I needed to have a plan because I wouldn't be able to run my company forever. Um, and if all of this talk, so many people talk about your business being an asset. Um, if your asset isn't a sellable asset, you know, then I have to ask, is it an asset at all? And, uh, and, I, and I think we just need help. Uh, mm. I think in our industry, we just really need help understanding um, the whole world of M&A. There are a couple of us that are kind of in the space, you know, trying to acquire. There's, you know, Jason Paris with Olive Holdings. They're doing it. Uh, my company, we're, we're uh, attempting a roll-up strategy as well. Um, but I think we need some foundational knowledge on whether this makes sense as a, as a venue for us to either acquire market share, grow our business, or just even be able to have a plan to retire. Mm -hmm. Sure. So if the problem that we're looking to solve, and that's, that's the way that it seems like your show works. It's also the way that I think. So it works out well. If the problem that we're looking to solve is, we are at whatever our status quo is as a, as a painting company. And chances are either we're happy with that and we don't need to make any changes at all. Um, and I don't talk to a lot of folks that feel that way in any of the businesses that <laughs> yeah. I work at. And I'm, I'm sector agnostic, but I do have a particular affinity for um, and soft spot for, for the trades and painting. Or you think to yourself, yeah, I mean, this is where we're at, but we could be doing better. And, and by we, it might mean the organization or let's get down to brass tacks here. It could mean you. It could mean your yeah. pocket. It could mean your wallet. It could mean your family time. It could be the legacy that you're trying to build or whatever that looks like. So if if the answer to if the if the solution to the problem is more market share, well then we start to get into how do you grow market share? Right. And there are a lot of ways to do that, many of which you probably have covered before. So there's within the world that you currently live in, in your business, you know, you can get into SEO, obviously you can get into paid ads, you can get into organic marketing, you can get into guerrilla marketing, you can get into um, really aggressively working for referrals. And all of those are things that you mm-hmm. that are effective and that you should definitely be doing. However, and you tell me, cause you own a painting company, right? And, um, do you find at times that it feels like you run into a little bit of a, um, to use an engine term, a little bit of a governor with those? Like there's just a point at which you feel like you can't really grow more or as quickly as you'd like to. Yeah. Yeah. I would definitely say that, uh, there are certain, you know, marketing channels that, that we, that we would use where there's a point of diminishing returns where Mm -hmm. spending more money in that channel does not mean, uh, an infinite return from that channel, right? Yeah. You can't just keep spending more money in Google ads and keep your lead cost where you, where you need it to be. You know, Mm -hmm. it just, it just doesn't work like that because the markets are finite. You know, you can't, you can't pretend like your money's infinite when your market's finite. Mm -hmm. And so that, so that, you know, that's part of it. Um, but if you were doing another strategy, like say, um, door to door cold calling or something Mm -hmm. that you, um, you're limited by your time, you know, like just, 
being able to be out there and, and all that. So I would say that the, the both time, money and the, you know, some of the circumstances of the market itself are, are definitely governors in that, in that respect. Yeah. And I hear that a lot and take heart in this feeling like, and I'm going to, I'm going to throw out a few feelings and emotions that I've personally felt at different times. Cause I've owned many different types of companies. Um, and also have a lot of clients and folks that I've worked with both from an, um, either as an investor in their business or a partner, or also as an advisor to help them grow. If I don't X, Y, or Z, insert whatever you want to, it doesn't happen. Mm -hmm. The buck stops with me. I need to do more of this. Um, Insert any of those things. All of those are dependent upon your action or inaction to make something happen or not happen. The, the question that I always have, and it's an uncomfortable question. So I'm going to, I'm going to tell the audience up front that some of you might get a little bristled by this. It's not the intent, but it's, it's sure. probably a healthy thing. Could you leave your business for six months, go somewhere, disappear, etc. other than maybe a few phone calls. And when you came back, still have a thriving business that continued to pay you when you were gone. I'm going to bristle. Can I bristle? Please. I know, I know you're a fighter, so don't fight me. Don't, don't <laughs> no, no, you're punch good. back too hard, please. But I, you know, I feel like, um, it's, it's really difficult to do that in a service-based company for a, a couple of reasons. Um, one, because it is a people relational business and even your top leaders who are even operating, they need you to, to be present. Um, I can tell you from my own experience that, um, I was able to leave, uh, things, you know, be, uh, for three months in my company. And while we had the systems in place, while we had people, um, in their respective roles on paper, it all should have been running well. And to a degree it was, but when I came back, Okay. Cause I had to take a personal leave. It wasn't because I was vacationing. Sure. Um, I took a personal leave for three months. When I came back, people asked that my, my team asked me, are you doing okay? Are you good? Mm-hmm. I said, yes, I am. I'm back. And they said, good. We quit. This has been too hard. Yeah. And, and it was in that moment where I felt like they, that my people, sure. We had the system. Sure. They were good people, but they didn't have a present leader. And I felt like that mattered and I still feel like that matters. Um, so I do bristle against that idea of leaving for six months. I think that it's healthier to think, um, can I leave the activities and the operations and all of those things? Um, aside, do I have to, do I have to run those or can I just, can I find fulfillment? Cause I think if you're in a business, like you're like, we have to work as human beings. Like we, like if you eat lobster every single day, eventually it tastes like soap going to vacation every day in in Mexico, you know, for three months, six months, it, it like, you can only surf so long until you got to get your hands dirty and start working again. So I do bristle a bit against that. But, um, I think that, you know, the big key here and what I at least take away is, you know, is, is, are you the linchpin? Like, well, can you just, can you just, can your business run in spite of you, even though I think that you should be a present leader? 
<laughs> no, all, listen, all of that is fair. All those are fair. And this is intended really to be a very rudimentary litmus test for okay. the health of your organization and your business. And I'm going to I'm going to um, talk about a couple of things that you mentioned that are crucially important. One is you mentioned the idea that you did have a company not to pick on you, but that you had a company and you That's had a functional issue. And yeah. these are the things that happen to all of us, right? Life happens as business owners. And so point number one that I think is crucial for this podcast, if you took nothing else away from this, is that in my experience, and I've got some heavy, heavy KOs behind me in my life, and I've got some incredible high success stories. So I've kind of done both. And in my experience, when things are going well, both personally and professionally. It's when there is an equilibrium with this concept. Your businesses, and it could be more than one, your businesses exist to serve you. You do not exist to serve your businesses. And because when life happens, the business should be able to remain healthy in your absence for a period of time. And healthy includes staff that isn't getting stressed out because you're not there. That tells me that, and I think that you would probably say this if we really dug into what all that was, there were probably some hierarchical gaps in that organization. It may have been the scale and the size, and we'll get into that in a minute. So there are certain things that you can do and that are realistic um, at certain market caps, certain sizes of your organization that are not realistic when you're earlier on and you don't have Mm -hmm. the revenue to have some of these layers in place. But ultimately... It all depends upon, and I think that getting to what you were saying, Torlando, what is it that you view yourself as? What crucial role in your organization do you fill? And that will evolve and change over the course of, especially if you bootstrapped a company, Mm -hmm. that will evolve and change over the course of years. So what you were when you started a painting company, when you first started it, you were probably everything. Every yeah, single thing. Totally. You were the painter, you were the marketing guy, you were the HR guy, you were the accounts payable guy, the AR guy, gal, whatever it is, all of those things. Well, then you grow a little bit and you maybe you, the first thing you do is you hire one other person. Well, now you're a boss. Now you have a responsibility over another person's livelihood and their career, as it were, and their development and their money. Yeah. Then you grow again and you add layers and you add layers. The next thing you know, you may have a company large enough where you have an entire production staff and then you have an entire sales staff and then you have different areas of the organization that you're responsible for top down. That's when to cover your point, I like to get all the organizations that I own at least to a point where they're large enough that they can have a GM in place Mm -hmm. and the GM to your um, astute point that you made is, is really the guy or the gal for that organization. I don't need to be there. And if I am there, my role is chief strategy and rainmaker guy. That's what I do. My goal is to grow the organization and to make sure that everybody has the revenue and the profit coming in that they need. I can do a lot of other things, but the truth is there's probably people who are better at it and I intend to employ those folks. So I think it depends on what your starting point is. There's no right or wrong answer to that. So if yeah. you're starting at, you know, 150 to $250,000 a year, um, and you're running a paint company, what I would encourage you to think of, and this is not derogatory, it's just a fact. What I would encourage you to think of is that at the moment, what you have is a, um, a well-paid job 
that you are completely, for the most part, autonomous over. And you still have a boss. The boss is your customers because you probably have a few enough customers that if you tick off any one of them, it's going to significantly impact your earning potential. The next step for that person would be to grow to between 500000 and a million dollars. Because with 500000 and a million dollars, you're, you're going to have crews that are working for you. Right. And there's not going to be such saturation with any one particular customer. So you can have a little bit more autonomy over the jobs you say yes to, the jobs you say no to. Um, and, and you have a little bit more meat on the bone in your organization to play with. If you're there, well, then the next step is you start to have a production head who really handles all of production almost. And that, that can be used interchangeably with COO integrator. A lot of times these are the same person, the vernacular changes, but it's the same person. Sure. Um, and then you tend to either you're really great at that and you fill that role and you bring somebody in or you acquire or you hire out somebody who's maybe a little bit more of a rainmaker and is better at figuring out how to grow the market share or you can acquire any number of things. And that's generally the point at which you just have to start doing some introspection yeah, and determine, all right, if I'm, if I'm happy with where I'm at and I'm happy with the income that I'm making and I'm happy with my lifestyle, that's okay. And so the next step for that would probably be to work with you to Orlando and figure out how do I take this status quo that I'm at this level of revenue, this lifestyle and optimize it to the yeah. very best of my ability so that I'm doing it in the most efficient way possible. And I'm totally cool with having a really highly paid job, but without the responsibility of being the head of an organization, that's a viable pl- path to growth that really has more to do with maximizing the market share you have without, and this is a really important thing because a lot of folks think of, yeah, acquisitions and M&A as if you're only acquiring market share. And that's a huge part of what we're doing because we can accelerate growth. There's actually a sneakily more important piece of M&A. You're acquiring infrastructure and assets Mm -hmm. to allow you to fulfill on more jobs than you probably are today. Yeah. But what, and this is a really important thing that I say to everyone I work with who, so there are bands within business ownership and some of them are obvious. So there's, you know, in banking terms, there's a small business, which they say is anything under 50 million to me, a $49 million business is not that small, but yeah. in traditional terms, <laughs> in true. traditional terms, they call that a small business. Then right. you enter into middle market and then you're into large cap and, and different things. Well, I like to stratify small business very much. And I just have found over experience that the person who's trying to get from let's say zero to million, million and a half. That tends to be heavy, heavy bootstrap. Often there's some, whether they use leverage or not, debt involved, scraping, hustling, the best kind of people that are Mm -hmm. out there just trying to make a change. And it's a grind. You're working 80, 90 hours a week. And a lot Mm -hmm. of those things you're doing yourself. Well, then you get to that point where, again, you have to make a decision. To grow from, let's say you get to a million bucks. Well, to, the thing that it took you to get from zero to a million is different than what it's going to take you to get from a million to five. They're different skills. They're different mindsets. And the things you need to be doing each week and learning are very different because it's individual contributor, um, jack of all trades to mm-hmm. now I'm really needing to become more 
someone who understands how to build organizations well and lead and motivate people well. And so I think that gets back to what you were saying about should you leave your organization for three months or six months? No, probably not. Personally, I do weekly or biweekly check-ins. They're about 30 minutes with mm -hmm. all of my GMs, but that's the extent of my role. And then if there's something that's large in that organization that kind of needs my expertise, or usually more importantly, my Rolodex, and I can just figure, hey, this is who we need to call for this. Yeah, That's kind of what I do. But it wasn't always that way, for sure. Right. And so what I like to do is to create businesses that are me proof. That's what I say. I like mm. to create businesses that whether I'm heavily involved or not involved, they're still going to thrive because I owe it to those folks who work for me to make sure that um, if something did happen or if my attention was not available to them, that they would still do well. And I've found M&A not only the fastest way to um, to grow a business that will get you increased market share faster and actually for a lot cheaper than some of the traditional marketing techniques that we might use. But it also sneakily, it, it gives you a, an ability to keep the best of what other people have from an employees mm. and the systems and a, and a resources perspective and to dump out the rest that you don't want. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. That makes, that makes that that's coming into view for me for sure. Um, cause I, cause I always go back to this, you know, point of like, well, what do I want my life to look like? Bingo. Right. And, and I do want to work. Um, I don't, necessarily want to be on vacation all the time. Look, I went to, I went to Disneyland <laughs> about a month ago. That was exhausting. That was, that was no vacation. One star. Do not recommend that. We're no, going to make Disney so mad. You know what? Here's an no, exercise. Go to Disneyland, but it was exhausting. It was, you know, I, I was ready to get back to work. Your lobster comment earlier cracked me up a little bit because I live I live in a suburb of Atlanta, Georgia with my wife and kids, yeah. but I grew up in Maine. And so I think I actually did eat lobster every day for a couple of weeks as a kid because there was this weird time when lobster meat per pound for natives was cheaper than hamburger. And you're right. Uh -huh. Lobster is not good when you eat it every day for that many times. Yeah. But um, jesting aside, an exercise that I put anybody who wants to work with me through. Um, if I'm going to work with someone from an M&A perspective, whether I'm working with them to prepare their business to maximize an exit, and there's a, there's a path that you want to go through to do that, to really not fall into any traps and lose yourself money out the back mm -hmm, end, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. um, or whether someone's looking to grow via acquisition, um, or sometimes I work with folks who don't necessarily know if they want to do either one of those, but what they do know is that their current life is not working for them for whatever right. reason. So here's the exercise I put them through. You can do this yourself. And the listeners, I think, could find value in it. It's not fun, but it works. What I need you to do is two things. One, I want you to spend a week and I want you to document every single thing you do from the moment you wake up in the morning to when you go to sleep every single thing. It's a pain in the butt, but do it. It's an audit. It's a simple time audit. Um, a lot of organizations use that. Mm -hmm. I find it effective for this reason. The other thing that I'm going to have you do is to engage your creative side and without any self-judgment. And this is something that I hammer on over and over and over again, remove self-judgment from your vernacular. I want you to think about what your ideal day, just a normal day, looks like for you and allow yourself to be as creative as you want to be from the moment you wake up 
till the time you go to bed. And where you start to find what I call uh, dissonance is when you have what you know you really want deep down. You've allowed yourself to create, this is what I really want. This is who I am. This is what I want my values to be. This is how I want to build my schedule around my life. But this is what I'm actually doing. And when the more, the more dissonance there are between those two things, it's likely that you're more likely to be highly stressed. You're more likely to be sick. Candidly, you're more likely to be out of shape. You're more likely to have poor mental health. Um, and your relationships are more likely to be strained. Why? Because simply put, you're not living the life that you really want, but I get it. It's this isn't a beating people over the head because I've been this guy. Yeah. If you don't know how to get from where you are here to where you want to be, it's, there are a few things in life more stressful. So you do those two exercises and then once you have an understanding of what you really want your life to be, and it doesn't matter what that is, the more honest you can be, the better, because there are no shortage of ways to build an incredible business that serves you well, if you know who you are, what you do well and what you want. So if you are someone, for example, who doesn't mind working 50 hours a week, and that's a good amount for you, my answer for what you should build would be entirely different than someone who says, I've got some health issues. I'm in my late forties, early fifties. My kids are coming into high school, college age. I really want to be there for them. I don't really want to work more than 10, 15 hours a week. Right. Neither one of those is wrong. The business that I would help somebody build is completely different for those two people. And the role that I would have them fill within that organization is you can serve both of those really well. The money is not the problem. We can find the money. It just is about being truly honest about what you want to do every single day and also auditing what you're good at and not good at. And that's hard. That's really hard for a lot of folks to be open enough to say, let me engage someone who's truly an expert and help them help me figure out what I'm good at and also what I'm really bad at that I probably shouldn't be doing anymore. Yeah. Yeah. These, these are really good points and they're, and they're making me think back to times where I had, you know, kind of drinking the, the Kool-Aid on, you know, delegating and business growth and all of this and, and started delegating all these things that I knew how to do well Mm. and didn't really have the, capital or the ability to outsource things that, um, I didn't know well. And what ended up happening JB is that I ended up with a job that I really hated and and I had a bunch of stuff that I had to do that I didn't know how to do well. And, and, you know, everybody was suffering for, for it, you know, I was suffering at home. My attitude was bad. I wasn't, you know, being as present as I should have been. And, and I really, you know, learned a hard lesson there. Uh, but I, you know, as hard as that lesson, you know, as hard as I, I, you know, that lesson was, um, you know, there's parts of it where I'm still like, I don't know if I really have the solution, but I'm curious, um, based off of what you said, um, on M and a, because you said it allows you to collect the best practices and the, and the good things from a company and discard the things that aren't working. And I'm wondering, you know, so for example, you know, my big issue, um, has, you know, look, I went to art school. I'm not an accountant, you know, (laughs) so so dealing with money, um, I have a good system for it now that I learned the hard way. Um, but it's not, it's still not something that I want to run. Um, even though I know what I want 
you know, to do. And, and, and I know you like, even though we're doing cash flow a lot better than we ever have, um, it's still not fun for me. And so I'm curious, um, if, if I'm, if I'm just kind of thinking from the end in mind and saying, okay, um, let me put myself in the shoes of my, uh, of the listeners here. We want to grow our business. I want to be able to get some of these things off my plate that I don't like. I want to free up my time. Let's just say I want to free up my time so that I can actually be a leader and not a salesperson, not an operator, but just a leader and and take care of my people, lead my people, um, not deal with all the finest stuff like that. Um, I'm thinking about M&A as a strategy. I don't know whether it makes sense to acquire or be acquired. Um, what do I, what do I need to do if I know that I I'm feeling like some type of M and a strategy is in my future, but I'm not sure which, and I'm Mm. not sure where to go from here. Yeah. Great question. So I think the best way to achieve that is to work backwards. And part of it is the exercise that I just told you about. I suspect you're a pretty self-aware guy, my experience with you. So if we used you as a test, depends on who you ask. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, yes, we my wife. I was just going to say, I'll tell you the I, truth. Any of our wives, <laughs> probably not so much, but generally, if you've been in business long enough to get knocked out a couple of times and you've stuck around, you tend to sort of have a pretty good idea of who you are and who you're not in business. That's just been my experience and my experience with a lot of folks. And if we use you as an avatar for a lot of other folks, and, and I would love to just throw out some, they can be fictitious numbers um, because it's destructive either way. Sure. So, let's give me an idea of kind of what your baseline is now in terms of what your what's fallen out the bottom of your business every year, your bottom line profit, and also your top line revenue, make okay. up some numbers, whatever you want. Yeah. Yeah. I'll do like our average, uh, our average, like PCA member okay. is in, in the, they're like 1.8 million is the okay. top line. And dropping out the bottom on average, what's the uh, EBIT? Uh, I would say, I would say that they're probably netting between, uh, five to 12%. Okay. Okay. So five to 12%. Can you, uh, real quick define EBIT for our listeners? Earnings before interest and tax. Um, a lot of times you'll hear the phrase EBITDA thrown around. I don't like to make multiples on EBITDA. The reason is the D and the A stand for um, depreciation and amortization. And and there's a lot of, let's call it creative things that happen that some we all do that every business does with the D and the A that make it very difficult to figure out what's real and what's not real. So I tend to prefer to look at what did you make after you paid your expenses? Full stop. That's a pretty easy thing. And it's also benchmarkable. So there are resources that I have access to. Um, Some are free, some are not, but they will tell me exactly. It's like real estate comps. They will tell me what a painting business is going for in this three-year period. What's the multiple of earnings? And it tends to be, and here's an important thing for the audience to understand. It has a lot to do with the size. The size of your organization is disproportionately responsible for the multiple that you get. Sub million dollars, it's hard to sell flat out. It's difficult to sell a business that's bringing in sub million dollars. Um, at that 1.8, again, we're right on an interesting cusp here because at 1.8, there's an enormous difference between 5 and 
and some of you are going, yeah, no, no joke, buddy. <laughs> so, you know, some of you who are closer to five and maybe have been at 12, you know, that's a huge difference in the amount of money that rolls out to your pocket. Well, think about it. It's also a significant thing for someone who might be an investor in your business mm -hmm. is if they're looking at you and a competitor to acquire and you're both at 2 million bucks and at the 2 million bucks, um, one of the guys is pulling out a hundred thousand and the other guy's pulling out two. The price is probably going to be higher for the one that's pulling out too. And they're just going to be more interest. Right. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So all that to say, what do we do? How do we solve that? So for at 1.8 and let's say we want to get into the really fun rooms, the fun rooms are when you have a, an enterprise value that's $5 million or more. There's just an interesting, uh, and you can really put some brackets there. It's probably closer to 4.5 to, you know, five and a half, but mm -hmm, just say mm -hmm. five for average. Some interesting things happen in that the multiples change drastically for no other reason than the size of the business is bigger. So you go from an average of probably 0.89, which is the low, that's the low multiple. So if you take, you know, if you take your 1.8 and you're at a 5%, um, you just take that number and multiply it by 0.89, and that's probably the minimum that you would sell that company for. And the average length of time that it would take to sell a company of that size is just under three years. It's a long time. Mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. that means some never sell. Many never sell. Mm -hmm. Some sell quickly, creating the average. So how do we get ourselves out of what I would call, that's bloody water. I don't like to be in bloody water. Mm -hmm. So how do I get out of that bloody water and into a little bit more blue ocean? The best way to do that is to grow the size. And it, you can be a little bit Machiavellian about this in that if your goal is an exit and to maximize your exit and also along the way, your cash flow will be a whole lot better. Mm -hmm. You need to gobble up market share as quickly as you can. You don't want to buy bad business, but you want to buy as much business as you can. Now, here's the. And I want you, I want to make a distinction here because a lot of you turned off your brain just now because you kept hearing me say the word buy and you thought to yourself, I don't know, JB, that sounds like I just, that's a big investment. I don't know if I can afford to acquire other companies. Well, there's something happening right now that you may or may not be aware. You're aware of it, but you may not have consciously thought it through. We're in the middle of what will be the largest transfer of wealth in American history, bar none. The largest exit from the workforce in American history, bar none. Why? Baby boomers. They're aging out. Yeah. And many of those baby boomers, a disproportionate number of businesses in our space, in the painting and also just the general contracting space and every business except for tech, a disproportionate number of those businesses are owned by baby boomers. So there's some dynamics at play here that are hugely advantageous to us if we're the ones willing to hold on and put our head to and our shoulders to the grindstone for a few more years and to lean in when others are wanting to walk away if we're willing to do that then there's opportunity why many of these folks built businesses that just are not sexy they've stood the test of time they've provided well for their family they're often not automated in any way they mm -hmm. could use updating. They're run in a way that they've been run the same way for 30 years. Nothing has changed. So you'll find immediate opportunities to improve the efficiencies of the business. Um, the other thing that you run into is a lot of these folks assumed because of the world they grew up in, 
they assumed that their kids, heirs, would be interested in taking over the business. That was the that was the succession mm-hmm. plan. That was their exit plan. Well, I'm going to sell it to Junior, and Junior's going to take it over. I'm going to go retire, and then Junior also has a great business. Well, guess what? Junior wants to talk about crypto and NFTs now. Junior doesn't want to run a painting business. And now you're stuck trying to figure out, well, what do I do? Many of those businesses close the door. Yeah. Close the door. And some of you are relating to that. Some of you hearing this are thinking it right now. Like, oh man, that's, that's a little close to home. That's kind of me. Cause it's not that you don't have a, um, a business that could have value. It's that the way that the business is currently running may not have value. And you're thinking, well, I'm not really sure what to do to make it a sellable asset. So I guess I'll just close it down. Well, that's, you can do that. Or there are some employees who probably would love to continue to have a job. And if you could find a competent person who is willing to raise their hand and say, Hey, listen, I'd love to take this over and, you know, make you whole somehow on the back end in a way that makes sense for both of us and make this part of an ongoing strategy to continue the legacy that you've built and to serve your customers well. And those of your employees that are quality employees will continue to have a place to work and all of that. Let's have a conversation about it. It's a very, very easy conversation to get into with somebody if you just kind of know where to look. Does that make sense? Yeah, I mean, I think, uh, you know, a little more direct, uh, directly speaking, you're, you're saying uh, creating an arrangement where you're financing the sale yourself. Yeah. It's, it's, an, it's a leverage buyout um, or a non-leverage buyout, I should say. A leverage buyout is, you know, you have a big enough business for someone to go get an SBA loan. The problem with SBA loans is that SBA... I'm going to be real direct here. So apologies in advance. SBA, that process is like a colonoscopy for both parties, for the acquirer and the seller. And there are just a lot of questions that they're going to ask that are probably going to get uncomfortable in the contracting space. Because when earlier, when I mentioned the D and the A, the depreciation and the amortization, when you start getting into balance sheet and P&L, all of us put all sorts of different things through our businesses. It's part of the allure of being a business owner, right? It's one of the perks that we get. Um, SBA does not tend to like those things. <laughs> and so it gets a little tricky. So a lot of times that's why a business doesn't sell is because that they're reliant upon lending. Hmm. It's generally a whole lot cleaner to allow the seller to act as the bank. And there's some really great tax advantages for them as well, because they don't have to take all that chunk of money up front. There's some things they can do to structure it so that it's paid to a trust and a whole lot of things we don't need to get into. But really the end result is you can grow your market share really to the extent that you feel like it. Candidly, you can grow your market share and then build yourself an asset that the buyers of the asset have a whole lot deeper pockets and they're just a lot more interested and easier to deal with. So the difference between selling a business that's doing $5 million top line and, um, you know, let's say a half a million bucks to make it 10%. So half a million ducks, billion bucks in EBIT, you're talking about between three and seven as opposed to the 0.89 that we mm. talked about earlier. Mm-hmm. The only difference is the numbers, yeah. the higher, the more. So, the other thing that's sneaky important is every time you add revenue, especially $100,000 increments, every time you add revenue, really, that's a really highly talented headcount that you can also add to help you scale and to leverage. Because you said something earlier that I think is crucial. It happened to me 10 years ago, um, and it happens to almost everyone that I work with who's operationally integral to their business in some way, which is... 
Well, me at 100%, JB Torlando at 100% is worth X amount of money and is X important to the business. But I know what I make and it's hard to re- replace me one-to-one. Like, I don't know that I can replace me one-to-one in my company. Right. Right. Well, here's where math helps you out. You don't have to because it's true that if you put um, trying to get another Torlando at what Torlando needs to make at 100% is difficult. What's not difficult is putting five of you in the business at 85% of you. But you're not paying them 85% of what you have to pay yourself. You're paying them probably less than half. So if you can get more of you at 85%, it just allows you to leverage out. And I want to go back to something you said earlier. There's a difference between delegation and relegation. And it's an important distinction because I botched this badly early in my career as well. When I started to delegate out the same exact, the, the, the experience that you shared was my experience where I took the things that I was good at and started to, that I enjoyed and and did well and started to move those out and kind of kept the things that I didn't like and created in, in essence, a prison for myself because I was only doing all the things that I didn't like. And what I realized was I had to invert that. That entire model had to be inverted. Totally. So now what I do is let's say that your business was at $1.8 million. Okay. And you knew that if you got to 5 million bucks, maybe even 10, because believe it or not, 5X is not crazy right now. That opportunity is absolutely out there. Depending upon your MSA, Metropolitan Statistical Area, wherever you are, um, if you're willing to, to increase the size of your circle outward a little bit more, then you absolutely have the opportunity to go to five or even $10 million or more. The way that you would approach that is look at what your $1.8 million company does. Well, what are your, um, what are your market inefficiencies? What do you do better than anybody else? And that might be design. It might be just, we literally are the best end product company in the market. Aesthetically speaking, our customers give us raving five-star reviews. We're consistently asked to help folks with design work because we do that really well. You mentioned that you're an artist, so I suspect you probably have the eye of an artist. So um, that's probably an, uh, an operational superiority that you have over other companies. Mm-hmm. But you mentioned- I, JB, I have the hand of an artist, but I have the eye of a tiger. Ah, I like Don't it. Don't you forget that. I like it. I like it, man. <laughs> So if I'm looking down the barrel of wanting to grow to 5 million bucks, just say that number, and you're at 1.8, you're talking about really needing to triple just about a little bit less than that. So what I'm first going to do is if I'm going to acquire a business that's going to allow me to grow, I'm going to try to acquire a business that is also good at something that our organization maybe isn't as good at. So I'm going to look for efficiencies in that company that we don't have. So what I'm going to look for in that case is I'm going to look for somebody who has a really tight back office. So if there's really tight back office, and that was really would be inclusive of not just financial, it would also be inclusive mm. of human resources, um, uh, budgeting, um, their estimating probably is super tight and well-maintained and it just kind of flows naturally. Their SOPs are existent. It's just really clear that they don't have any, they have a very small amount of accounts receivable because they're just on top of everything and they're just Mm -hmm. on it. That's a, that's an attractive acquisition, maybe disproportionately attractive to me if I'm in that situation where Mm. I know that it's a need. So even if maybe, and let's say 
the dream scenario happens where they're really tight with that, but their average job is a little bit lower in price. Why? Because they're not super creative. Maybe their quality is not as good. Mm -hmm. Maybe the products they're using are inferior to the products that we're using. Maybe they have a training issue with their staff. Maybe they have no training program whatsoever. So somebody comes in with them and is an apprentice painter. Um, and by the way, one of the things that I enjoyed the most about your talk was that you sort of address this. What's the mechanism by which do they have to bring someone from brand new person in our company to master level person who can run a job by themselves? Right. Many companies do not have that at all. So if a company that maybe is their weakness, but they crush it when it comes to um, estimates and billing and collections and the financial aspect of it, I can put those two things together. And the interesting thing is it's not one plus one equals two because of the inefficiencies that you can solve by putting those two things together, it, it often ends up one plus one equals five because you can mm. grow so much faster when you I look see. at adding companies that are complementary to what it is that you don't do yeah. well. Instead of one plus one, it's like one times one. Really? I mean, yeah, yeah right. Yeah. right. <laughs> no, I, I was going to say I was no math major, but no. Yeah. <laughs> no, I, I get what you're saying here. I, you know, and, and where I think that this might be, um, you know, very like hyper relevant to to our listeners um, in in markets. I think in certain markets, especially if you're trying to, because because look, our average member is that, but that is kind that's an average, and that's kind of skewed by some of the bigger companies. And then we have a lot of listeners who are under a million. So mm -hmm. so I'm thinking if we have people who are um, trying to get into this acquirable space where they can have an exit and, and sell their company, it might make sense to look at merger opportunities where you are maybe looking locally and saying, okay, you guys seem to have a handle on estimating. We have a handle on production. What would it look like to join forces mm -hmm. and pull our resources together? Um, you know, and, and, and see if we can kind of level up together. Yeah. Um, I, does that feel right to you? It does. And another way to say that, you know, the, the fancy M&A term for that is a merger. But um, the more folksy way to say that is a JV is a joint venture. Mm -hmm. And really, I've had a number of clients, several in the painting space who have done precisely that. And they have done exceptionally well. There's some caveats. And sure. there's some things that you really need to make sure that you nail. One is... Do you have value alignment? Meaning, do you, the principal and the principal of their organization, is there values alignment with how they view the marketplace and, and the delivery of service, all of that? Because, you know, I, I try not to put a um, any morality into this. Mm -hmm, it's just mm -hmm. it's just a way of being. Some companies are really geared to blow the doors off high volume, not super concerned about the quality. They're going to make it up in high volume. That's one business model. Others are more higher price point, lower volume, but unbelievable quality. That's mm -hmm. going to not necessarily be the best match ethos wise. So you have to make sure that you have some value alignment. The other is understanding if you're going to do something like that, the win-win for both, because it's W-W-O-N-D, win-win or no deal. Mm -hmm. So if both entities are not better off together than they would have been separately. And usually you can make the case for that. Then don't do it. 
Yeah. And then what role is each principal going to play? Because what you can run into is a situation where if you don't address it up front and in writing and everybody really understands, you don't want to have too many cooks in the proverbial kitchen. Yeah. Yeah. I, yeah. And I, and I think that what's nice about contracting is that, um, what we're accustomed to, especially with, um, co-contracting or subcontracting, I think that actually lends itself to pretty clean, to be able to cleanly test the waters. Whereas in some of the circumstances I've been in, like when, you know, our, our software company was, uh, was acquired, it was like, they signed the letter of intent. They have to go through a period of due diligence, mm-hmm. which was months. And then, and then they make that a question. But once that deal is signed, you've, you've got the baby and the bathwater and you got to deal with it. Uh, whereas I think with, with our industry, uh, because there is such a common, uh, thing to, to go in together on contracts, I, I kind of, just made up the term co-contracting, but, uh, it's really subcontracting, but you can look at it like that where it's like, Mm -hmm. okay, I'm an independent contractor and I got this job. You are an independent contractor and you got the workers. Let's see how, let's go like this for a while, see how well it works. And then if it makes sense, you know, to formalize that agreement, bring it all in together, then I think that you, you can, whereas, you know, if it doesn't work, then, okay, you, you know, we're good till this, till the end of this contract. And then we, we part our ways. But I I think a lot of people enter into partnerships and agreements prematurely and they don't know what's going to happen. I mean, even with my partner, um, we spent probably a year doing independent contracts with each other before we formalized our company. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I'll tell you another thing that I always do with any company that I purchase and any deal that I'm involved in is everybody gets personality profile. Uh, There's several that I like very much. And the reason for that is there are just certain personalities that are not going to work ever. They will not work. And so if you don't have a full understanding when you walk in of kind of what that might look like, you can get in trouble. And then the other is um, something you said brought up. Um, I do think something I want to mention, which is that let's say you're consolidating a market. That's really what we're talking about here. That's the, that's the industry lingo is market consolidation. So you want to consolidate the market share and let's say that you want to get to $5 million and you're at 1.8. So you need to make two acquisitions. Probably on average, you need to make two acquisitions. And let's say you draw a 90 minute circle transportation wise around where you are now. And that is your catchment area. You kind of know how many homes are there. So therefore, you know how many opportunities exist. And if you need to buy two companies to get to your 5 million bucks, then it's just math. It just becomes about the math and if the math makes sense. But here's the interesting thing. Let's say that you are, let's say you're the premium company in the space, in that 90 minute space. Cause this has happened to me before where I've had a client that, um, I won't name the city, but he's a roofer and, um, he wanted to grow from about 6 million to 15. He's actually on pace to go closer to 25 now. But at the time the challenge was he was head and shoulders considered to be the premium top dog, highest quality, highest trust, highest reputation in town. And it wasn't close. So the tricky thing for him was, well, how do I make acquisitions? And am I going to be lending and borrowing upon our stellar reputation and potentially harming it by acquiring some of these other companies that maybe don't have as good of a reputation? Mm -hmm. No. 
And here's why. One um, is the concept of really holdings company. You do not necessarily need to change the names of anything that you purchase. You can just own them all with holdings companies and the public need be none the wiser. It's really irrelevant. So they're all owned by the same entity. That provides some benefits itself because you can market in different ways and see what works better. Flip side is, if you do want to rehabilitate some of the acquisitions that you have, what better way to do that than to do a press release, which is a common tactic that I use and say, you know, Acme Painters is so pleased to announce the acquisition of Billy Bob Painters. Um, we believe that our stellar 25-year reputation in doing 252,000 rooms painted and this five-star average review will um, really help us to maximize Billy Bob's painting, da-da-da-da-da. So you can really approach it from either angle. And a lot of times I think folks get concerned that um, if there's a reputational component to it, how do I address that? What do I do if I want to start consolidating the market? And you make a great point. That's the other reason why um, you can be pretty creative in the way that you structure things to sort of see if the JV is going to work and make it so that you could both exit it if it doesn't. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Totally. So so what does a, a good acquisition plan look like uh, then? It starts to me always with the end in mind. So I always like to start with my exit in mind. And I don't mean the company exit. I mean me personally. Mm. So if I know that, and it's usually one of two things, it's either you have a cash flow goal or you have a net worth parachute goal. Sometimes they're related. Sometimes you have both. Usually it's one or the other. So a lot of folks will say, if I could have a, if I could build a lifestyle business that I'm working 20, 25 hours a week and I'm pulling out quarter million, half a million dollars a year. I'm good. I'll do that for 30 years. That mm-hmm. tends to be the personality that would get bored on the golf course real quickly. They don't want to mm-hmm. go fishing. They kind of enjoy the, the hustle, but they, for a number of reasons, may need to just dial down how much of that they're doing. Mm-hmm. That's a cash flow play. That to me looks different, and I'll get into both quickly, than somebody who says, nope, I want to take the next five years and I want to do whatever it is that I need to do in that five years to maximize my exit. And I want to leave with the most amount of money I possibly can. And then I want to go do whatever I want to do. Mm-hmm. Those are different goals. Mm-hmm. The first 25% looks exactly the same. It's you have your number in mind, whether it's a monthly revenue number that you need or whether it's an exit that you want. It's reverse math. Then you figure out, all right, if this is the number and this is where I'm at now, what's the delta between those two things and how many businesses, given the averages in my area, how many am I going to have to acquire per year to get to that number? That's just the math of it. Mm-hmm. Then it's, then it's, you can get into a lot of, you know, how do we creatively negotiate that? How do we get our deal flow? How do we find folks that might be interested in selling to us or rolling up into what we're doing? Um, and both of those are going to require systemization. Because anytime you add variables to what you're doing, if you don't have really tight systems and processes, and you literally wrote a book about this, if you don't have um, tight systems and processes, variability will lead to mistakes. Mistakes lead to money lost. Okay. Right. So it's very important that the first thing you do is audit your own organization and your workflow and how you do every single thing that you do. The more repeatable it is, so that if one of your subs 
doesn't show up to a job on a certain day and you send a different sub, that work product is going to be exactly the same no matter who did it because it's just the way you do things and everybody knows that. Mm -hmm. That's step one is benchmarking you. Once you've benchmarked you, then you just go into um, what I would call you know, if it was dating, you know, you'd maybe, I don't know people still do this cause I'm, I've been married for 22 years, but maybe then it's you start a different going world. I was going to say, man, I'm probably outdated here, but the, you know, the folks probably on this are going to hear what I'm saying. Just, <laughs> um, well then maybe you start thinking, okay, well, well, I know I want to, I want to enter into a relationship with somebody. So let me go start looking at what's available on the market here. So maybe I start going to the park. Maybe I start going to some bars. People probably don't do that anymore. Maybe I go on Tinder and start swiping or whatever. There you go. The apps. <laughs> um, it's brutal. So that I understand what's available, what's around me. And there are a lot of ways that you can go about doing that. And some of them, for the most part, you can do quietly, which I would actually encourage initially is to do it quietly. Because when folks don't know that you're looking potentially to make an acquisition, you tend to get more reliable information <laughs> than you would um, mm. if they do know that you're looking to make an acquisition. But sure. um, I would say start looking at those acquisitions and figure out if I need to make two acquisitions in three years, and it's probably going to take X amount of time. I'm going to bolt the first one on. Once I have done that, I'm going to figure out what did we gain? What did we lose? What do we need to change? What do we still lack? And then I'm going to look to add that again. Understanding also, who is my buyer likely to be? When I exit this entire thing, who is my buyer likely to be if I'm looking for that big chunk of change? If I'm wanting to stay for 20 years, all I need to do is to get to that $5 million range. And then I know I'm going to have enough monthly cash flow coming in really to hire anybody that I need to. You don't want to overhire because that's mm -hmm. a trap that you can fall into. Right. But I want to hire some folks who really will do most of the things that I don't like doing so that or even if you do like them, maybe you're not good at them. You know, maybe there's some things in your business that you like, but you're just bad at it and you need to let somebody else do those things. Once you have that in place, well, then you do have a lifestyle business. And here's the cool thing. When you have a lifestyle business, what that really means is you have a business that thrives and does well, despite fairly limited engagement from you. Well, guess what? You also just made the most attractive kind of asset for an investor to buy that you could possibly build. So you've sort of given yourself two different outs, but you can live on that cash flow as long as you feel like um, and kind of ride the wave. Uh, and it also it puts you in a position where when you do a couple acquisitions, something interesting happens. You stop having to ask anyone if they're interested in an acquisition because they're going to come to you. Once mm. people realize that you're in the market and you're open for business, so to speak, you're going to become the game in town that everybody starts calling and saying, hey, listen, I've got something you want to look at. That happened. It's predictable. happens every single time. Mm. Once you do an acquisition or two and you start to put it out there that, hey, and people talk, you know, especially in the contracting space, people talk, hey, geez, you to Orlando's company over there. They're really, they're really doing well. They're acquiring businesses left and right. You should call him. It mm -hmm. kind of becomes a self-feeding machine a little bit once you get that first one under your belt. But mm. it all starts with candidly probably working with someone like you um, initially to help them understand what they do well, what they don't do well, and where there may be some operational gaps, some leadership gaps in what they're doing. Mm -hmm. um, and then the acquisition strategy itself, it really is just figuring out take away any sort of limitations you've placed on yourself. That's really the biggest problem with folks who are sub 2 million bucks is a lot of times when I really dig into businesses like that, 
I can't figure out maybe why they didn't crest and break through a plateau. It's very rarely environmental reason why that didn't happen most of the time. And, and I'm the chief of this. So I've, this has been a lifelong fight. It's self-limiting belief. It's believing that based upon maybe the environment that you were raised in, whether it was overt or not, that a certain level of success, people were being greedy or they're mm-hmm. evil or money is evil. And people get in a lot of head trash about that. And what will happen is they'll actually inadvertently they'll start self-sabotaging mm-hmm. so they'll start making bad decisions in their business or spending money that they probably shouldn't or putting money in things they shouldn't um pulling back recessions happen and the instinct is to uh, well i'm just not going to spend any money when in reality ad costs go down during recessions so it's actually never a better time than to spend money than when a right. recession hits right. so you know there, there's sort of a lot to that but if i had to encapsulate it figure out where you want to go don't lie to yourself about it if you want to walk away with three million bucks, five million bucks, cool. Do that, but just understand the math of what it's going to take to get there. And then it's just pretty repeatable process as to how you do the math backwards to make that happen. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. Awesome. Very good. I, uh, JB, I feel super educated today. You, you made me a little bit smarter. So I good, man. It. Yeah. Um, uh, you know, it's unusual that I get to hear that because I am also married um, so appreciate that. I, that was my affirmation of the day. Well, somebody's got to know your love language over here. That's <laughs> it, man. That's it. Uh, JB, if, if people want to learn more about, uh, you know, the stuff that you're doing, tell us about some of the stuff you're doing these days. Sure. So up until recently, I've only worked on mergers and acquisitions really, and that tends to be retainer plus equity type thing in this larger deals. But I have so enjoyed um, some of the speaking engagements that I've gotten to chat with folks who kind of are in that $3 million and under range that I realized I was doing a little bit of a disservice because I didn't have anything to sell anybody. <laughs> folks, you want to tick somebody off, have them like something you say and then have nothing to sell them. It's, <laughs> it's funny how people get mad. But so here's what I'm doing. I've created a, there'll be a podcast called Quicker Profits um, that'll be launching here in the next month or so. And on the back of that, we'll be built a community that's a paid community that you can join if you felt like it um, to really cover a lot of these topics. How do you grow in, in scale by either acquisition or in preparation for an exit and kind of anything in between? And it really will be, um, I think one of the beauty, most beautiful things about that community will be it's going to be sector agnostic. And that's been a huge secret weapon for me is because I do M&A and, and I bought and sold businesses in almost any sector you can imagine, you can kind of take best practices from each sector and plug them in. And they seem new, but they're really not. It's just that that industry maybe hasn't experienced it. So I have that going on. Um, if you have an M&A deal that you're wanting to put together or you have an interest, you can always reach out to me and and I can at least point you in the right direction and give you some resources um, for how I would do it. And so that's going to be um, best way for now until some of the websites are built out. It's probably just going to be it's Facebook. And my handle is actually just slash your buddy JB. Super easy to remember. So just Facebook slash your buddy JB. Uh, that's my personal profile. What you see is what you get. Um, and I would love to to hear some of your thoughts on what you're thinking, you know, cause look, here's the, here's the deal. This next three years, it's going to be topsy turvy. Everybody knows it. It's also, you can look at it two ways. You can look at it as, Oh my gosh, the sky is falling. I don't know what's going to happen. Or you can look at it differently, which is the way that I'm looking at it. And a lot of the folks that I'm working with are looking at it, which is 
literally with just baited anticipation like it's Christmas because mm-hmm. these types of white whale events are when wealth is transferred. And a lot of folks raise their hand and say, hey, I'm done. I want out. Mm-hmm. And those are folks I want to talk to because I want to, I'm, I'm actively acquiring businesses and I'm in the Atlanta area. So I'm doing a home services roll up myself. So if you're interested in that, and if you have a desire to consider buckling down, leaning in and doubling down in some ways, then it may be worth having a conversation. Absolutely. JB Brown, thank you so much for uh, meeting us today. It was a great conversation. You got it, buddy. Enjoyed it. All right. There we go, folks. JB Brown. Uh, great conversation. Um, really, uh, really informative and uh, appreciate how he uh, broke down um, each of those steps there. Um, I think that when, you know, look, there are a lot of conversations that I have, uh, you know, behind closed doors. I won't mention names or any, you know, any specifics, but um, there are people who are on both ends of this aisle. Those who are saying, I only got about five more years and then I'm I got to get out. I got to move on. I got to retire. I want to go be on a beach somewhere. There are people who are just thinking to themselves, something's got to give in this industry. It is right for consolidation. It's going to happen. Question is who? And I think there's, you know, some folks and I see them on a day to day basis where it's just like they are they're wearing so many hats that they're thinking, I don't I just I don't know. I don't know how to keep going. Um, And they're good at a few things. And I mean, like exceptionally good at a few things, but there are certain things that they just don't got that is really making the difference between them being successful and not. I think about my my late mentor who was a, a business owner for most of his adult life. And in his last years, he just kind of got over that need to be an entrepreneur and recognized that he was just great at sales. He found himself a great sales position in an exterior company, uh, made more money than he ever did in his whole life uh, because he narrowed down his focus and said, this is what I'm good at. This is what I'm going to do. I'm going to let somebody else play the game of a business owner. And so there, there are a lot of ways that you guys can, can think about your future today. I think the critical piece here is what do you want it to look like? Um, do you want to start acquiring and to grow do you want to to loosen up a little bit and and just you know for once just be be that employee that you always wish that you could have uh i i had to do that you know i I, you know i mentioned uh i you know hit a hit a rough patch i had to get out for a second i had to take a break i had to latch on to somebody else's vision and you know the amazing thing about that is is within two years I was able to be a part of a company that exited. That company was actually named Company of the Year in my hometown because of that acquisition. And it was a, it was a great experience to be a part of. So there's not really a wrong way to, to do this, I don't think, unless you're, you know, living in the poorhouse. And then at that point, well, yeah, you do you are doing something wrong. You got to figure it out. You know, you got to figure out how to take care of yourself and your family. And the beautiful thing is that I know this industry can support you. You just got to figure out the, you just got to figure out the way. And, and that's what this show is dedicated towards. It's, it's 
dedicated to help you find the way to, to grow your business and to live a happier life. Uh, so glad that I could be your host today. Again, if you want to listen to this show, if you want to watch the video, uh, go ahead and snag it on PCA Overdrive. Uh, it's $5.99 a month free with membership. And uh, if you want to learn about this book that that we were talking about, this processes, if that's where you feel like you're struggling, you need some help with your processes, I recommend going down to Amazon uh, and picking up the book Sprint. Um, just search for Torlando and the word Sprint and you'll find my book. Um, thank you so much to, to JB. Thank you to the PCA for producing. Thank you to our sponsors. And until next time, my name is Torlando and this has been Paint Ed. Paint Ed podcasts are produced by the Painting Contractors Association and is made possible by members and industry partners. To find out more about upcoming education opportunities or for more information about joining PCA, visit PCAPaintEd.org.